This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello, we are back. Welcome to Season 2 of Innovating a Bright Future. I'm your host, Avery Kreiwalt, and this is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. For our first episode back, we're leaving the world of energy for a bit and delving into the industrial side of emissions, the carbon dioxide that's produced by creating materials, materials like concrete, steel, and aluminum. To discuss this topic, I'm talking to Cody Finke, who has created his own startup called Brimstone Energy, and they're focusing on the concrete side of emissions. I hope you learned something, and please enjoy. Hello and welcome to the show, Cody Fink. You are the founder and CEO of Brimstone Energy. And Brimstone Energy is a relatively new company. You're a startup company. And from what I understand, you're working to reduce emissions from industrial processes, which is one of the highest emitting industries across the world. Can you give me a little bit of insight into what you're working on and what you're hoping to achieve through Brimstone? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Avery, and thanks for having me. As you mentioned, we are focused on reducing industrial emissions, and we are focused right now on the cement industry. So the cement industry is particularly interesting because it is responsible for 5.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions, or about 8% of CO2 emissions, so it's about the same as cars. But most of those emissions have nothing to do with burning a fossil fuel. 60% or so of those emissions come directly from the rock that are used to make cement. So even if we used 100% clean energy, most of the emissions would persist. We are working on a process that can make cement without ever producing those emissions. I've always found it kind of interesting how highly, like cement in particular, is almost equal to the amount of carbon dioxide and harmful greenhouse gas emissions as like the entire, however many billion cars are on the entire planet. But it's like, once you think about it, I guess it's not as surprising because how often we use cement and how much of it we use for all of our buildings are on these cement foundations and as you said, I'm interested to hear like where exactly that's coming from, because I did assume that when all these emissions are coming from cement, a lot of it's coming from greenhouse gases, but apparently that's not the case. So it is greenhouse gases. It's just not from burning a fossil fuel. So of course, the greenhouse gases is anything that can absorb and re-emit infrared radiation. And um, carbon dioxide is a very important greenhouse gas. And this is carbon dioxide still. So it just happens that the carbon dioxide primarily comes from the rock. So let me give you a little background on that. The earth has a natural carbon cycle. So that's carbon traveling through biology and traveling into the atmosphere and in the oceans and back into rocks. And it does this cyclically. So how the natural carbon cycle works is CO2 or carbon dioxide will enter the atmosphere potentially from a volcano or from animals breathing it out. And it will react with water in the atmosphere to make carbonic acid. That carbonic acid will 
rain down on the earth. This is totally normal. This has happened for as long as CO2 and oxygen have been in the atmosphere. So a long, long time. That CO or that dissolved CO2 or carbonic acid will then react with rocks and dissolve calcium and magnesium from those rocks and flow into rivers and the oceans and potentially be incorporated into the shells of animals and into biology. Ultimately, uh, that carbon dioxide and calcium will precipitate out as what's called limestone or calcium carbonate. And what the cement industry has figured out to do is they realize that if you heat up calcium carbonate, then the CO2 will bake off and it will leave the rock and you'll be left with calcium oxide, which we call lime. And then that calcium oxide, the cement industry will further heat to react with silicon or alumina and a few other materials. And that will turn into what's called ordinary Portland cement. So most of the emissions come from this act of heating up the limestone to blow off the CO2 from the rock. So it's not a fossil fuel, but it is still CO2. And it's actually just a shortcut of the natural carbon cycle. And now that we're using concrete more and more, we're accelerating that process more and more and getting more of those emissions, which is what's leading to, of course, climate change, the thing that we've been talking about. That's right. Yeah. So just to get our nomenclature, cement is the binder or the glue that sticks things together in buildings. And then concrete is the building material. So cement makes up 10-ish percent of concrete, sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less. And concrete is the most consumed human-made material on the planet. So the only thing that's consumed more by mass is water. But of course, water is not human-made. All of the emissions, or the vast majority of emissions anyway, that come from concrete are a result of the cement that's inside. So, you know, probably, I don't actually know the exact number, but I imagine it's something like 99% of the emissions come from the cement. The other statistic that's relevant is cement were a country, then it would be the third most emitting company or country after the U.S. and China. Wow. It's hard to wrap your head around just how much that actually is. It's definitely a field that we haven't talked about on the show at all yet, but definitely should be talked about. And it's very encouraging to see companies like Brimstone start to work on it. So where did you get this idea from? How did you get started on this idea and where did it come from? I got my PhD at Caltech down in Los Angeles. I was studying electrochemistry in my PhD and I was working on a electrochemical wastewater treatment system. And it was specifically for applications in low-income countries. I really liked that project because it had a lot of implications, a lot of both social and environmental implications. It could help a lot of people solve a lot of environmental problems. And I was getting really into the science and engineering of this project, and we were doing some field trials in uh, India and China. You know, we then started working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to try to commercialize this technology. I started doing some techno-economic analysis, which is a fancy word for saying trying to figure out how much this thing would cost when it is at scale and being mass produced. Long story short, it did not look good. <laughs> that was, you know, phase one of depression in graduate school. And I kind of went back to the drawing board and I said, okay, you know, this is kind of a strange project. Not so many people are working on it. Maybe I'll try to work on something more mainstream. So I looked around what other people were working on at Caltech and everyone was working on clean hydrogen. So I started working on clean hydrogen. I spent about two years making materials that could make a lot of clean hydrogen. Clean hydrogen, of course, could be wonderful. It could totally replace fossil fuels. It eliminates 70% of greenhouse gas emissions. You know, there's all these wonderful things. 
I figured that because so many people were working on hydrogen, it must be a promising technology. I then did another techno-economic analysis, and I became even more depressed than uh, I did from the wastewater treatment system. So I went back to the drawing board, and I decided that I would make some criteria for what I wanted to work on instead of just sort of following what other people wanted to work on. And the three criteria I came up with was, one, I wanted to work on something that relatively few people were working on. And in that way, I could you know, have an outsized chance of having a large impact on greenhouse gas emissions or at least environmental problems. So I looked around for large emissions categories and cement definitely fit that bill. There are not so many people working on cement. And, and being very, very genuine when I say this, that really appealed to me, especially because in graduate school, I didn't think that I was you know, especially gifted at electrochemistry or, or sort of the, some of the mainstream things like hydrogen and batteries. So I felt like if I were to go into something mainstream, it would probably be pretty hard for me to, you know, have ideas that other people hadn't already thought of. Whereas if I were to went into something that was less researched, there's just a lot more white space and a lot more room to have ideas. So that was criteria one. Criteria two is the material that I was making had to be cheaper than the conventional way to produce the material. Because I didn't really think that, um, and I still don't think, that any material that is more expensive is going to be widely used. In general, people buy the cheaper thing. And you know, we see that with energy transitions and industrial transitions time and time again. You know, new ways to make steel or cement do not come about because people are concerned about the environment. They come about because they're a cheaper way to make the product. So that was criteria two. And then the third and final criteria was that, and, and I think the most important criteria for me, is that the process that I want to work on had to be lower emissions under the least cost economic scenario. Let me explain what I mean by that. There are lots of ways to power your widgets. All right, so by widgets, I think Cody just means anything that really requires power. In his case, the widgets he's talking about is the machinery he needs to make concrete. I'm not 100% sure on this because I couldn't seem to find any info on it, but that's my guess. And in general, you can always use clean energy. So you can use solar energy or wind energy as electricity. If you need heat, you can run that electricity through a resistor and make heat, and you can always make things clean energy. However, in most cases, you wouldn't ever do that because clean energy is the more expensive version of energy. And I'm going to pause on that for a second because it's a little confusing. So we see headlines all the time where solar energy or wind energy is two or three cents a kilowatt hour, or maybe even less, whereas natural gas energy might be six cents a kilowatt hour or seven cents a kilowatt hour. So how could it be that solar or wind is more expensive? And the answer is what we call capacity factor. So solar and wind are only available for a fraction of the year you know, 20 to 40% of the year, you typically have to oversize your industrial equipment in order to make the required amount of product when you use solar or wind energy. And therefore, because of that extra capital expenditure in order to buy that equipment, it ends up being more expensive. So typically, fossil energy is cheaper, at least today, for industrial processes. So the process that I'm working on was really important for me that it was cheaper under the least cost economic scenario. So typically meaning with using fossil energy. And that's because I can't predict the future. So if it turns out that actually solar and wind can't make it and we can't get cheaper energy 
in the long run, I want to make sure that the process that I'm developing doesn't emit more greenhouse gases. Cody laid it out almost perfectly here. So yeah, the lowest cost scenario just means that no matter where the energy for his concrete production comes from, whether it be fossil fuels or renewable energy, his process is cheaper and lower emissions than the current process. So Cody is basically guaranteeing himself a win-win scenario here. Because even if the global effort to decarbonize completely collapses, and we continue to use fossil fuels for everything, which would be really bad by the way, Brimstone energy will still be the cheapest way to make concrete, and it will be the way that creates the least emissions. So I, I took those three criteria, lower emissions, a material that is, that, that is going to be cheaper, and then something that not so many people are working on. And I looked at a few different processes, and I came up with some processes for hydrogen and aluminum and, and steel and cement. And I did the techno-economic analysis before doing years of research, the cement process was the most appealing um, from a techno-economic standpoint. Fascinating. That's quite the journey. Like from from where you started, those first two kind of I don't I don't want to say failures, but like they're you're welcome to use the word failure. <laughs> those first two challenges that you faced to then going on to forge this startup company that has an unimaginably bright future, at least in my mind, like this is something that I can see going a long, long ways. And I'm no financial advisor or investing professional, but this seems like something based on what you're working on that can go a really, really long ways, both economically and for climate change, for sure. That's something that that I kind of wanted to point out because a lot of people, for anyone listening to this, a lot of people assume you have to have it all figured out right off the bat. And obviously you didn't because you had those two, those two challenges that you faced, but then you figured it out and now you've got brimstone energy, which is growing and evolving and changing the entire cement industry as we know it. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, you know. So I've spent most of my time blowing it, but they're, you know, learning, learning opportunities, certainly. So, you know, I, I think the other thing to point out is that sort of the, the idea of pivoting has been really, really important for the company. When we learn new information, we're really not afraid to change things. And like, that's integral in the founding story. You know, I did my whole PhD in electrochemistry, and now we're doing something completely different because, you know, the more we learn, the more we realize that it wasn't the right solution for the problems that we wanted to face. Definitely. That's something that you're seeing across the board too. Everyone's talking about pivoting, especially in regard to the energy transition and like going towards a more sustainable future. Everybody's pivoting, pivoting this way, pivoting that way, trying to be more sustainable, trying to be more green, always trying to get more consumers on their side because of their pledges to be sustainable. It's, it's pretty encouraging to see. We just have to make sure that everyone who's saying that they're being sustainable is actually being sustainable. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the challenges is, especially with private companies, it's difficult to be sure, maybe impossible to be sure. Just something that we have to stay aware of. Now I kind of want to dive into like what Brimstone actually does differently, what's your technology and what's your process, because you laid out really well how it's been done in the past and where those emissions are coming from. So what are you changing? I mean... (laughs) start by answering what we're not changing. <laughs> so uh, the biggest thing that we're not changing is we're not changing the product. So we are still making ordinary Portland cement. 
and we're still making we're still making cement uh, that is chemically and physically identical to what's conventionally made. And that's really, really important for us. You know, we look back at history and we look at big industrial transitions. So, you know, to name a few, hydrogen, which is currently responsible for 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions, it is currently made via steam methane reforming. Um, it used to be made via coal gasification, but people figured out that there is a, you know, a cheaper way to make hydrogen. But importantly, they didn't make a new product. They still made hydrogen. And the same thing, you can look at the steel process. So the steel process has gone through about four transitions. There's the Bessemer process, and then there's Siemens process, and then there's the blast furnace or oxygen converter process, and as well as the electric arc furnace process. All of these were associated with reducing cost, but in every case, they still made steel. They didn't make a different structural building material. And then the cement industry is the same. They've gone through the vertical shaft kiln into the, the long rotary kiln, into the pre-calciner plus short rotary kiln. You know, all of these transitions have always still made the same product. They've just been cheaper ways to make the same thing. Our process similarly is a more economical way to make the exact same material. How does it work? So we realized that limestone or, or, or lime, I should say, calcium oxide is the cornerstone of cement. And right now it's in the cement industry, people get it from limestone in a process that kicks off CO2. So we, the first thing we said is, well, we don't want to start with a rock that has CO2 in it. So what other rocks are out there that have lime in them? And we went looking and it turns out that, that most rocks in the Earth's crust have lime which was encouraging, except that we found that the concentration of lime in these rocks is somewhat lower than the concentration of lime in limestone. So maybe the concentration is half or a third of what we find in limestone. That was great. You, there's, there's lime in other rocks, but it's not great because you need to mine more tons of rock per ton of cement. At that point, we almost kicked this idea to the curb, but we looked a bit further into the cement industry and realize that the cement industry has another big problem. So right now, cement is actually a combination of two things, a combination of ordinary Portland cement and supplementary cementitious materials, or SCMs. SCMs are byproducts of burning coal. So they're like fly ash from a coal-fired power plant or blast furnace slag from a steel mill. And the cement industry will buy these SCMs and mix them in with ordinary Portland cement to improve the properties of the cement and then sell that as cement. And that's a, you know, a necessary component. However, because natural gas and to some extent renewables are replacing coal as an energy source, we're running out of things like fly ash. So if you ask someone in the cement industry what their biggest problem is, typically they will tell you that it is sourcing fly ash. And it turns out that slag and fly ash, you know, have pretty well-defined chemical compositions and pretty well-defined standards. I'm a chemist. I was like, maybe we can make those too. And it turned out we were able to figure out a way to turn the rest of the quote-unquote junk that was in the ro these rocks that contain lime but do not contain CO2 into synthetic fly ash. Wow. So two birds with one stone. That's right. So we were able to develop a process that uses a rock that does not have any CO2 in it, extracts the lime, turns the lime into Portland cement, then extracts the other stuff and turns that into fly ash. 
Now, if you're a cement company and you were to use our technology, you can have a plant that make both cement and supplemental cementitious materials in one location, which simplifies the market, allows the cement company to control that aspect of the market, which they never were previously able to do, significantly decreases shipping cost because everything's right in one location, and ultimately just makes a more economic pro- uh, product. And of course, with that same in that same vein, one of your most important criteria for choosing this project was, of course, reducing those emissions, which if you're not burning off the CO2 from limestone in order to get that lime, then you're reducing those emissions and any other emissions that you're producing by the uh, supplementary cement, cementious material. How do you say that? Cementitious, yeah. Cementitious. So, uh, y- yeah, supplementary cementitious material or SCM. That's an easier thing to SCMs, say. SCMs. There you go. SCMs. And then you're getting all these SCMs as well. I'm curious if you're changing up this process, then how are you breaking that rock down? Is that all done chemically? Like as you mentioned, you're that's kind of what you've been working on. So what does that produce any emissions or how is that actually being done to produce both those aspects? Yeah, so so the story actually gets a bit better than what you than what you described. I haven't told you this yet, so there's no way you have known. But so these calcium silicates, that's the you know class of rock that we use, they also typically contain magnesium. And magnesium, you cannot have magnesium in cement. If you were to have magnesium in cement, then sitting in cement, it would react with some CO2 and expand and cause cracking. It would be a big problem. So right now, there are limits on about 5% for magnesium in cement, but typically 1% to 3% is like a really acceptable range for magnesium. We had to figure out a really efficient way to separate the magnesium from these rocks as well. And we did. And our magnesium is a waste product. But the beauty of magnesium as a waste product is it passively absorbs CO2. If you were to just to take magnesium hydroxide or magnesium silicate hydrate, which are, you know, the sort of the versions of the magnesium waste product that we make, just put it on the ground and come back a year later, it would basically be fully carbonated. So it would fully absorb CO2 and turn back into a rock. So we do use energy in our process. We didn't, we didn't break any laws of thermodynamics. And the least cost energy scenario involves using a fossil fuel at this time. But because we have so much, mag- there's so much magnesium in these rocks that for a typical rock and for the amount of the fossil fuel we burn, once the absorption capabilities of the magnesium is taken into account, our cement is actually carbon negative. So even with the use of a fossil fuel, the cement is net carbon negative. So that, that's sort of getting at your energy question. And then to answer your energy question directly is every step in our process uses energy. So we have a, an extraction step where we extract calcium, and that is a chemical process. And then we have a kiln step, just like in the conventional cement process, where we heat up our calcium in order to turn it into Portland cement. Basically necessary thermodynamically is to heat it up to very hot temperatures. Both of those processes consume energy. You know, the total energy consumption is, in fact, similar to what conventional cement production. However, because we make this magnesium and we avoid the process emissions, this process can be, for a typical rock, again, be, be carbon neutral or carbon negative. Which is great that you guys are getting to that point even while using a fossil fuel. And it's even more exciting to think in the future, if possible, not telling you how to run your business or anything here, but if possible, when renewable energy gets to be even more prolific, 
integrating renewable energy instead of fossil fuels, which is something we'll see across the board. Oh, absolutely. You know, I know that you guys are based on being more sustainable and emitting less CO2 and other greenhouse gases, but that's much better than I even expected to be still using a fossil fuel and end up carbon neutral or even carbon negative. Thank you. Appreciate that. This is one of, you know, I, I, I'm in complete agreement. You know, I, I am very hopeful based on the companies that I, you know, I know well, that we will move beyond fossil fuels for energy. And when we do, our process will be even more carbon negative. We'll still passively absorb CO2, but in this case, directly from the air, we could be a major carbon sink at a global scale, which is a very, very exciting thing for us. Because as one of my professors in graduate school said, climate change doesn't just care about emissions today, it cares about the integral of emissions. It, care, it cares about you know the total emissions over time or the total amount of carbon dioxide or greenhouse, gas emission, greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide, for example, has a resonance time in the atmosphere of around 100,000 years. So the stuff that we put there, if we don't take it out, it's going to be there for a long, long time, warming the planet for a long, long time. So yeah, it's very, it's, it's, it's very exciting that you know, we may be able to have an outsized impact on that. Yeah, you can't stress that enough that we talked about it earlier, like cement is 5 to 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. To be reducing that to zero or even into negative numbers is truly remarkable. And that is amazing that you guys are working on that. So thank you so much for making such incredible steps in this direction in the cement industry. That's amazing. What do we need to do moving forward? in order to ensure that the cement industry in particular, but if you want other industrial processes or even just emissions in general, how do we ensure that we're developing all of these systems in the right direction in order to make them more affordable or as affordable as they can be, but also working on reducing emissions because that has to be one of our utmost priorities at this time. Industrial emissions specifically are, can be a big challenge. One of the biggest challenges is the scale that these things are. So we produce around 5 billion with a B tons of cement every year. That's a couple cubic kilometers of rock that we have to quarry in order to make that cement every year. The minimum scale for a new build cement plant these days is 1 million tons of production capacity per year. But a more typical would be like 3 million tons of production capacity. And those cement plants, they cost somewhere between 200 million and a billion dollars to build. It is a lot of capital and a lot of scale. As you can imagine, the idea of you know, setting up our own cement plant, it's kind of like a, a startup claiming that they're going to set up their own oil refinery. It's kind of ridiculous. It takes a lot of capital. One of the things that we need is we need governments and the existing industry to work together on this on this challenge because there's just there just isn't enough money without that cooperation to uh, retrofit or to um, new build our way out of industrial emissions. And that's you know that's true for cement, it's also true for steel production. It's also true for ammonia production or hydrogen production or any of these other major, major chemical industries. Then the question becomes, how do we get industry to work together? And I think that, you know, one clear way is make a clear economic opportunity. So our product, for example, 
it, it looks like at scale, it will be a more economical way to make the product. So we need to, we need to have the access to capital in order to get to scale. So that comes from venture capital money and government grants. So making sure that, you know, governments are putting money out there for research and development and also scaling of pilot so that we can demonstrate economics is really important. And then ultimately having finance, what we call finance vehicles or methods of finance to get these things built. So I think that cooperation between government, major businesses, and startups in four way would be very essential for this transition. Yeah, that seems like it's kind of the sticking point for sure. When you mention those huge numbers of what it takes to build one of these things, I mean, you're doing great with Brimstone Energy, but you don't you simply don't have that kind of money to build that up. So that's definitely an important part of that process. For that cooperation piece, as you mentioned, probably the most important thing, and I won't argue this point, but the most important thing is that economic factor. Everyone's going to go for the cheaper option, no matter what we're talking about. But do you think there's any hope of existing industry and governments looking at your process and seeing the reduction in emissions and taking that into account in order for cooperation to actually take place? Is that something they'll look at or you just need to focus on that economic factor? I think that the economic factor is the uh, the grease that makes that engine run. <laughs> so, you know, I think, you know, if you look at sort of success stories within, within energy transitions or industrial transitions. If there's a win-win as in an economic win and an environmental win, we, those are the times where we see relatively fast transitions. So, so the thing that I like to point to is the transition from coal to natural gas, electricity. In terms of energy, it was a relatively rapid, rapid transition in the United States once the combined cycle natural gas power plant was invented and scaled to major adoption of the combined combined cycle natural gas power plant, uh, replacing coal-fired power plants with combined cycle natural gas power plants. Basically, what the what governments and people saw was that burning natural gas, in theory anyway, cleaner than coal, and it's also cheaper than coal. So this is you know clearly a better world. So let's all get together and speed this transition along. And I think that you know our process, cheaper and carbon negative, seems like clearly a better solution. I am optimistic that you know once we can demonstrate some scale, we can start some serious collaboration. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, I'm optimistic too. I don't know all that much about Brimstone, but from everything you told me, I'm super optimistic about where you're going from here on out. I think that's most of kind of the longer answer questions that I have for you. But I just have a couple of short ones that I want you to answer as fast as you can if you've got the time for it. Yeah, for sure, Avery. My first question is, how important is energy storage for the future of energy? I know it's not really your field, but I'm just curious what you think about it. It's uh, incredibly important. I actually studied energy storage for, for a while in graduate school as a, a use of the hydrogen that I was trying to make. That is the one thing that could solve that capacity factor issue that I talked about earlier. So. Right now, renewable electricity for industrial processes is typically quite expensive because you need to overbuild your uh, factories and only run them 20 to 40% of the time. However, if we were to store energy, we could then run them 24 hours a day and we wouldn't have to overbuild the factory capacity, which would um, reduce costs enormously. Unfortunately, energy storage is way too expensive right now in general not universally true, but in, uh, you know things like pumped hydro in some cases can be can be very cheap. 
but very inexpensive energy storage could unlock wind and solar in a major, major way. My second question was actually, what do you think is the best form of energy storage? So since you've worked on hydrogen, is that your answer? Sure isn't. It could be. It's, you know, not with current technology. I think some of these mechanical energy storage solutions are, are really intriguing. So pumped hydro energy storage, which is you know, running, running water uphill and then letting it run back down and spin a turbine. It's currently the cheapest form of energy storage because it's just very low capex, nothing that fancy. There's similarly compressed air or companies that move cement blocks using you know, chairlifts or cranes or something like that. Those all seem like they have, they're very simple and they potentially be very cheap. Probably you know, pumped hydro or compressed air or something like this. What Cody's talking about here is something I'm hoping to do an episode on eventually. But it's really early in development, so there's not a lot of companies that I could even interview for it. Basically, this storage is different than things like hydrogen or batteries, because it doesn't rely on chemical change at all. There's no movement of electrons. Instead, physical forces such as gravity or pressure are harnessed to generate electricity. For example, you can use energy to lift giant weights high up off the ground, and the energy is then stored in the gravity that's acting on the weight. When the energy is needed, the weight is allowed to fall back down, which generally pulls on a cable as it falls and turns a turbine, or some variation of that kind of rigging. This is, of course, pretty hard to visualize and very difficult to explain, so there'll be a video in the show notes that lays it out nicely. How important, this is my next question, how important would you say is individual action in the overall scope of climate change? So I think that... It's very important with a caveat. You know, just like voting is important, individual action is also incredibly important. We can, you know, we have our own personal sphere of influence and, you know, we can have a lot of change by being vegetarian and, you know, influencing our friends to be vegetarian. However, the world is really complex and, and the world is really, really hard. You know, we, we also all can't be sane. It's ridiculous. We need to intentionally build a system where it is easy to do the right thing environmentally. And right now we do not have that system. Yeah, I, I think that, that the risk with individual action is we take the blame away from the systemic problems, uh, you know, our energy system and, and everything. So at this point we got disconnected and couldn't actually continue the interview, but Cody was so kind to take some recordings of himself to answer the last couple of questions I had. So big thank you to Cody. Thanks for being so accommodating. I'm just going to read the question before his recording plays so that you know what he's talking about. Uh, the first one is, what is one thing that people can do to make the world more sustainable or just better in general? I think this is hard because as individuals, we have you know, limited power to impact the world. But I think that we should all try to honestly and rigorously evaluate our position in the world what privileges we've had because of how we were born to no fault of our own and try to get educated on how the world is connected and where the things we buy come from and what resources and then try to do our best to most importantly dedicate our careers to thinking about ways that we can change the system to better or to as treat people and the environment in more humanitarian or kind ways. And I think I, I know this is vague and that's because there's no one size fits all solution. Everyone's what people can do is gonna be different based on their circumstances. But I think that really taking the time to 
understand what the impact everything we have has on the world around us, and then trying to think about how that's bad and how things could be better. Based on your knowledge of the world at large and your industry, do you think that we are capable of meeting our emissions and climate goals set for 2030 and beyond? Both pessimistic and optimistic. I think that yes, we can. I think that it's literally true that it's possible. I am currently not convinced that we will, but I am, I am hopeful, and that's why I'm doing what, we're, what I'm doing. But I think that the reality is, is that even if we can't do it by 2050, doing it by any time is still better than not doing it. So having a goal of 2050 is good to make urgency, but we shouldn't, but we shouldn't stop trying to do it just because we can't do it by 2050. Although I, I think that it is possible and we should try our hardest. And finally, where can listeners find you and Brimstone to learn more? All right. So this is actually good. So we just started working on social media. I'm not an expert at this, but we're trying to get the word out a bit more. So our website is www.brimstone.energy. You can find me on LinkedIn if you just search my name, Cody Finke. And then on Twitter, my company, Brimstone Energy, has a Twitter, and I also have a Twitter. That's Cody Finke. You can just search my name and find me that way as well. So, the, so yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter, and then our website. All right. Thanks, Avery. Well, I would say that was a pretty great first episode. Another big thank you to Cody for coming on. Almost 3% of total carbon emissions globally come from concrete production alone. Never mind producing things like aluminum, steel, and textiles. Which is why focusing on industrial emissions is so important to decarbonizing our world. I can't emphasize enough the essential nature of the work being done at Brimstone. I'm not a financial advisor. Don't take my advice. But... If you're looking for an investment opportunity, I would keep my eye on Brimstone. I really would. They have a lot of potential. Anyways, bonus episode coming Friday. Don't miss it. Before we close out this episode, quick reminder that our email newsletter is going out weekly with new episodes. Find it in the show notes along with our Patreon and social media. And it's giveaway time. Subscribe to the newsletter by January 12th of 2022 and you will be entered into the Tentry giveaway automatically. You'll get an email if you win, so make sure you're subscribed and confirmed. And that's all. I hope you learned something from this episode. Stay innovative. I'll see you next week.